The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, I want to welcome you to TBC. Man, I can't believe school's starting already. That's just ridiculous. August 9th, tomorrow, first day of school for you UMHB students. You guys ready? You excited or... No, you're not ready. I don't know if I'd be ready either. This is ridiculous. Uh, well, either way, you got to go, I guess. Uh, Mark chapter 10 is where we're looking. We're continuing our series in the book of Mark. And, uh, you know, it is my birthday today. And uh, I'd like to, you know, act all spiritual and, and say, like, man, there's nowhere I'd rather be but on this stage with you guys. But I'm not that spiritual. I can imagine like beaches in Jamaica and Mexico and mountains in Colorado. But I will say this, this is one of the places I'd love to be on my birthday. And I'm glad I'm here. So, um, but I can't just pretend there's not some beautiful places out there I could be right now. Anyway, I don't know why I said that, but I guess happy birthday to me, whatever. Uh, Here we go. Last week, we looked at Mark chapter nine and uh, Chase led us in a study on God's power, resting in God's power, not looking for greatness on our own, uh, but also the fact that Jesus is the glory of God, no matter what situation you find yourself in, that Jesus is the glory of God. And today we turn to Mark 10, and we're going to be looking at a good chunk of verses, so we'll have to just follow along as we go. It's going to be in a, a number of different sections that we'll look at today. But starting in verse 1 kind of gives us an idea of where Jesus is. It says, He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And so you can see on the screen where he was coming from. Uh, He was coming from Capernaum, and then he went down to the region of Judea and then beyond the Jordan. And you notice that, once again, there's large crowds, large crowds everywhere. And uh, it's... It's interesting to watch how Jesus deals with crowds. And many of you maybe don't like crowds. You don't want to be in a crowd. I know my wife is like the opposite of me. Just give me a couple people. I'll hang with them. It'll be a great day. But give me a bunch of people and I want to just sit in the corner. So Jesus, it was amazing to watch him because at times he could be by himself and totally fine. But then in the crowds, he just adjusted and and really ministered to these people. And so today we're going to see this in a tough situation here, even in the first 12 verses. You know, when it comes to divorce, sometimes in our culture, it seems like the Wild West. When it comes to things that we struggle with, especially when it comes to divorce, over half of marriages end in divorce in our country. And that doesn't change when it comes to churches. It's unfortunately the same stat. Uh, when it comes to divorce, both for non-believing and believing, claiming believers that claim Jesus. I understand we're all in different places and have specific emotions and experiences attached to divorce. Some of us have been hurt by divorce, whether we're a child, a young person, and even an adult. Some of us have been hurt by divorce because our spouse left. Some of us have been doing the hurting in our lives. My challenge here as we get in these first verses is to leave personal opinion and cultural standards behind and let Scripture speak. 
Oftentimes, we let our opinions and what we think should be right, we let that guide and guard our hearts, and then we put Scripture into it. And that's a false, that's an error, that's a a false way of looking at Scripture. We look at Scripture first and let it determine our opinions. And that's what we're going to do today. So look at verse 2. Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning, creation, God made them male and female. So here we go. The Pharisees are testing and probing, always testing, right? Anytime they encounter Jesus, they're trying to get him to slip up here to do this, to do that. And here they are again, trying to trip him up with his words because they're throwing Moses into the mix and they want to know, okay, what is going on here? What does it say? And I love how Jesus sets them up with the Moses statement. And Jesus does this all the time. And I know I find it humorous that he does it because he doesn't necessarily do it to me right here, but he'd probably be set me up too. And he sets them up for failure because they're like, okay, well, let's see. Moses says we can have divorce, right? And then Jesus hits him and flips it on him and says, no, that's just because of the hardness of your heart. That's the only reason why that was allowed back then. Uh, So it's interesting that when we look at scripture, we need to understand that God has a higher view of marriage than we could ever have. That God's view of marriage is way higher than even the most spiritual couple out in this audience or watching from home today. That he values marriage. It's the greatest way that God has created uh, for us to be able to identify. And even if we don't get married, even if we're single, we actually get to see this marriage covenant between Christ and the church. So when we get to marriage, it's this beautiful picture of the gospel. So I love that Jesus now doesn't just go into divorce and speak to just one specific topic. He actually goes into marriage as a whole that is helpful for all of us. But before we get to that, let's look at the, what the religious leaders were getting at in Deuteronomy 24.1. What are they referencing here with Moses? 24.1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he write her a certificate of divorce. Well, there's a liberal rabbinical school, Hillel, that thought, well, this indecency when it comes to a woman, that could be really broad. And so what they decided could be like a woman who didn't wear her hair a certain way. A woman who was caught on the street talking to another man. A woman who screwed up dinner that night. How many of you women out there would be divorced just for those three? And they created all these indecencies that women could commit. And then boom, I I have liberty to divorce you. Now, there was another group that was less liberal, the Shammai, who kind of brought it back and kind of reeled it in a little bit, reined it in when it came to that. But there still was this divorce happening because of these ridiculous things. Now, we need to, it's also important to note that adultery wasn't even in the mix because if you committed adultery, anybody know what happened to you? You were dead. So (laughs) the adultery didn't even factor in there at that time. This was just for these other things. 
But instead, again, instead of answering directly, he goes to the heart of the matter. And first, in verse 6, he goes through the design of marriage. He says that he made them male and female, right, for marriage. But also, like many situations before, contrary to culture, I want you to get this, that Jesus elevates the status of a woman. Every, almost every time I've had a passage given me from the book of Mark, and then even back into Abraham's day, it's come up the fact that women were treated poorly. And that's a severe understatement in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where we find ourselves today. And here, even in the Old Testament, and now what Jesus is saying is that this is different. That I'm actually seeing you as equal to man, not underneath. And Jesus adds this as an important factor. He adds, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found... So he goes there, and then he goes on to add this, and he write her a certificate of divorce. And then in Genesis 2.24, he's kind of quoting, and he's saying, they're no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore is joined together, let not man separate. He's trying to help us see this joining together is the time where I elevate a woman to equal status with a man. They're no longer treated for indecency and divorced that way because of the hardness of their hearts. R. Kent Hughes, this author, helps us see that Jesus quoted from Genesis to illustrate intimacy and permanence, two words that are important to note. Intimacy first. When he quotes this, it's important for us to understand uh, he says leaving, right? In that passage, he's saying leaving father and mother. Well, again, we need to look at the culture. And the culture that he's speaking into in the Gospels, when you get married, how many of you, anybody out there newlyweds? Like within the last year, let's say. Anybody? Newlyweds, all right, boom. Congratulations, congratulations. And anybody else I can't see out there? Now imagine you getting married and uh, you go off on your honeymoon, whatever you do, and then you come back and you move into your parents' house, like the back room. Or where I grew up is the basement. Uh, like imagine that. That's, now in this culture, when Jesus is speaking, what happened was culturally, especially in Jewish culture, you were still with your family. It was like almost like you were living together. You were in the same space. You occupied the same space. Now, it wasn't like for me, I get married in Texas, and guess what? I stayed in Texas. You're not getting a, 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 a Texas woman out of Texas for too long. And I got my wife out for a year in Miami, and we moved back. So I've been... Uh, a Texan for a while now, and I left my family. So physically, I left, but here, he's not necessarily talking about leaving because he knew the culture, and they actually stuck around each other. And they, they were there. They were with each other. So the leaving is a little different. It's actually more emotionally and dependently. And we're called here to hold fast. It's a powerful word. In the Hebrew, in Genesis 2, when it's used, that hold fast was actually used where it's, it's, the idea is sticking two things together and they can't be separated. It's holding fast. And then in Mark 10, the Greek words that Jesus uses for this holding fast is actually referring to glue. So they actually agree with one another. And it's not like that Elmer's glue that some of you ate when you were younger, you know, at school, uh, or that paste or whatever. I, don't, I didn't eat Mark laughed pretty loud. He probably ate that glue, I guess. Uh, but 
Uh, it wasn't like that glue where you just rub it up in your fingers. Some of you put it all over your hands just so you could rub it up and throw it at people or whatever. But it wasn't that kind of glue that was like not very strong. Anybody ever work with Gorilla Glue? <laughs> that stuff, you get that on your hands, you either need sandpaper or it's just going to be there for a year. It's, I mean, it's sticky and tough and it just stays. That's the glue he's talking about here. But who's the glue? I mean, he's talking about relationships, so he's talking about two things sticking together. So what's the glue? Is it fairy tale love? Is that first year of marriage where everything is great? Maybe not. I don't know. But is it, is it, you know, batting an eye, the wink, you know, a hug or a kiss? Is it that the glue? Because we all know we've been married long enough. That's not the glue hard enough and strong enough to keep you together, right? The glue is Jesus. The glue is the Spirit. The glue is God himself. And the idea is being joined together. Let no one separate. It's permanence. The Creator, the Almighty, ordains this. And he adds there, no longer the two are one flesh. No longer they're two, but they're one flesh. They're joined together. Let no man separate. He takes it further than Genesis did and says, don't let someone separate. So divorce is not just a simple choice and procedure, contrary to what the world says. It's not like, eh, I'm done. I've had enough. We can't take the same attitude that the world takes toward marriage. That's kind of interesting. Uh, two weeks ago, we took my daughter's 16th birthday. We take her to San Diego on a trip by herself. And we go out to San Diego, hang out. We had to adjust the trip. She, she tore some cartilage in her knee, so we couldn't do the surf lessons anymore. So here we are hanging out with the sea lions uh, in her knee brace. My wife's here today. I won't even tell the story about her almost getting attacked by one of those sea lions. See her Instagram for that. But uh, it was a mess. But anyway, um, we're out there. We're in this harbor. And the next day after we took this picture, we go on this uh, whale watching cruise, which really is, give me your money, you're going to see a bunch of dolphins. Uh, and so we saw whales for like a split, a whale for a split second. But anyway, we're seeing hundreds of dolphins. It was amazing. Don't get me wrong. But uh, we're coming back into this harbor. And as we're coming back in, there's this, these little boats you can rent into the little bay area. And there's a bunch of girls that look about college age. And they're in this boat. And if you look close on a sash, it says bride to be. And these girls, just in case you can't read the big sash, this girl goes, she's getting married tomorrow, right? And yells up to the boat. And we're all looking. Half the people are sick because they went 10 miles out off the coast. But uh, so they're like, oh, great, you know. And uh, she's getting married tomorrow. And without skipping a beat, right next to me, this guy, his wife was right there. He goes, good luck. You're going to need it. And then, uh, and then this dude over here goes, don't do it. And I'm just like, all right, here's my daughter right here. I'm just like, oh, wow. That's, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, don't do it. I mean, you're 16, but it's a horrible thing. Now, I know those guys were joking, right? And even some of us joke that way uh, when we know someone's about to get married. But it does reflect, humor does reflect truth, right? In a lot of ways, we've seen marriage differently in our culture. Marriage has been reduced to an optional activity, a beneficial procedure for the two, or a high-risk choice, and a really a low-expectation action. That's really what marriage has been reduced to in our culture. But that's not what Jesus sees marriage or how God sees marriage. It goes along with a very prevalent attitude in our society today that is centered on self and personal fulfillment. 
My life is about me, self-fulfillment. It goes to this book, uh, Divorce, and how and when to let go from John Adam and Nancy Williamson. They write, letting go of your marriage if it is no longer fulfilling can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Well, if it's not fulfilling, you're not fulfilling me. Well, forget you then, right? And it goes to this attitude even that we approach as Christians sometimes that somehow that spouse is going to fulfill me. Somehow they're going to complete me. And I'm going to give you a warning, especially all you college kids, if you're looking forward to marriage someday, that person is not going to complete you ever. And to put that expectation on that person is false and wrong and borderline sinful because the only one who can complete you is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So here we go. A different view of marriage. Tim Keller kind of sets this straight, that horrible quote above. He says, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. I'm not completing my wife. You can ask her. I'm a far thing from that. I'm working on that every day, but I always see how, how I'm a failure. Not from her words, but just obviously I am. But the reality is that there's something else involved in this marriage. God working through the marriage, bonding us together. And then in verse 10, they apparently left the crowd and they went into a house. Disciples followed Jesus' words on divorce. They want more insight. You ever get that situation where you hear it in a group? And then sometimes I have even some people come up to me afterwards like, now what were you really saying? And that's kind of what the disciples are doing here. What, what is he really saying here? Well, let's see what he's really saying. He goes and doubles down on it, right? He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he very bluntly states that divorcing your spouse, marrying another is adultery. But don't miss this. Again, this is an elevation of the status of a woman. When he references the woman giving a divorce and the woman uh, being committed adultery against the ability there and to say that both of them have equally been committed adultery against, again, shows this value. Because in this culture that Jesus was speaking into, again, that wasn't the case. It, he would have just said it's just the, the man and not the woman. And so he again elevates this. So I'm often, I don't know about you, I don't know if it's being the youngest of four kids. I'm not sure what makes up my psychology, and I'm probably not a good idea to look into it. But I'm always looking for exceptions to rules. Maybe some of you are like that out there. Some of you are rule followers. You got your list, you got your detail, and you help others follow rules, and you make sure they're following the rules. And I have plenty of people like that in my life. Uh, I got... Anyway, I'll keep going. Uh, so... I, follow, I look for exceptions. And so when I look for exceptions, uh, maybe I'm like you. But why are we always looking for exceptions? Why are we always looking for an excuse or a way out? Now there is, don't get me wrong, an exception. We might call it that. Matthew 5, 32. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there is that brief moment, right, for sexual immorality, and there's a, 
a number of definitions you can take from that. But that seems like that's our little get out of marriage free card and we really just focus on that when in reality we should be ditching the focus on that and the excuse to be able to get out of it and instead focus on building our marriage, instead focus on pouring into that person and lifting them up and seeing them being a stronger Christian than when you first met them versus just looking for some excuse to get out of a marriage. Now, I don't want you to miss this. I understand that there are people in this room that have been through divorce, that have actually served the papers for a divorce. And I want you to hear me very clearly. There is tons of grace for you who have been divorced. This is not some special sin that keeps you from God, that everything is under God's grace and forgiveness. And it's ready and willing and able for you now today. But there is a challenge for all of us when it comes to divorce, where we sit now, wherever we are in our marriages, to be able to see the value of marriage. I also want to be sensitive to those that have been through abuse and are maybe going through abuse. This isn't a calling for you to stick it out and just deal with it and and struggle through it. There are times where you need to get out and separate yourself. Maybe for a time, but maybe for an indefinite period where you need to get away from that danger. And so God's not calling you to live in danger, but to be wise and to seek counsel. But the majority of us, the question I guess for us is, are we looking for a way out or looking for ways to follow Jesus in marriage? I've seen the devastating effects over 20 years of youth ministry. The devastating effects that a divorce has, even a cordial divorce or whatever you want to call that, is devastating on kids and students specifically. But we have God's grace. But there are so many marriages wrecked by what I call the demon of self-actualization. What is that? It's what we do a lot in our lives, we go back to acting like children. We let emotion and feeling and self-satisfaction rule our lives and make decisions that really affect everyone in our lives based on that. And that's not what God's calling us. So what should we do based on this biblical wisdom? There's four things. Reject cultural trends of self-fulfillment as a God. Embrace the biblical truth even when it causes pain. Seek counsel from one of your TBC pastors or your small group leaders. You are not alone in this, in this struggle, if you're going through this struggle. And then remember, we are called to helpless dependence on our great God and King. You cannot do this alone. There's an interesting transition here. He goes right from divorce into addressing children. And we go right from there in verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child should not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So first of all, I really want to point out, again, kind of like last time I was on the stage, that there's something about physical touch that is important to Jesus and showing value. When he touched those who were in need and when he embraced these children, there's something that shows value. And also the reality that strangers 
were bringing children, their own children, and even Luke goes into more detail to say they were little children, which that Greek word means infants, that they were bringing their infants to a stranger to hold. I don't know about you, but back in the day, especially for my first child and your first kid, you know, we got four kids, so your fourth one, you're like, oh, anybody want to hold them? I don't know, whatever. Uh, but like your first kid, you're like, she's sleeping, you know, and oh, no, no, you're going to trip over that rock. Let me move it out of your way, you know? And, uh, and so we don't want anybody, I wouldn't trust my own nephews to hold my babies, right? But here they are bringing their infants to Jesus. How disarming was Jesus' love and his character? The people, as they approached him, just offered their kids, say, here, touch them, hold them, care for them. Such an amazing thing to think about. So when we get into this situation, the disciples, they think they're helping Jesus. They're like the bouncers hired by Jesus, right? They see themselves as, all right, we got it. They feel special, the son of God. We see him do some crazy miracles. We got this, Jesus. Back off, kids. Get away, shoo. You're an annoyance, an inconvenience. And what does Jesus do here? It says he's indignant. That Greek word for indignant, it's the only time the gospels use that word in regard to Jesus ever, like in the entire gospels. That word is only used for Jesus here, dealing with children. It basically is saying he was really ticked, right? Jesus set them straight. He says, let them come. This is what God's kingdom is about. And again, in the disciples' lives, just like ours, we can't learn our lesson. If you look back in chapter 9, last week we just heard Jesus saying, hey, don't make one of these children stumble. If you do that, you might as well have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the, the, to the sea. And you look at it in verse 36, 37, 42. He shows the value of children, but again, the disciples kind of missed it, right? Get out of here, kids. Jesus loves children. He affirms the special relationship between God and children. The question I often get is, why are you still doing youth ministry over 20 years? Didn't you like graduate to something else? You know, why are you still with kids and students? These stats kind of help sum it up for me. Not that there's other things, but these are stats are pretty powerful. 19 out of 20 received Christ before the age of 25. 20, after 20, at 25, 1 in 10,000 will become believers. At 35, 1 in 50,000. 45, 1 in 200,000. 55, 1 in 300. 75, 1 in 700,000. That's, that really shows you the heart behind what's happening here. Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. D.L. Moody, he once returned from a meeting and reported two and a half conversions. Two adults and a child, I suppose, asked his host. No, said Moody, two children and an adult. The children gave their whole lives. The adult had only half of his life left to give. He had a good perspective on ministry to children. What does it mean to receive the kingdom like in verse 15, like a little child? Best thing I could come up with at the moment when I was looking through this was thinking about my kids. I got two sons, seven and 11 years old. If my wife and my girls and I left the house for a month and just left them to themselves, and then I imagine what I would come home to, shows me what it looks like to embrace the kingdom like a child. Helpless dependence. Because they would be starving, the dog would probably be dead, 
because no one would feed poor Rocky. And it would be a wreck, right? And kids, when they're little, they show us the need for helpless dependence. And this is what we're getting at today. The idea that we all need that attitude of helpless dependence on our great Savior and King. Verse 16, he lays his hands on them. Physical touch. The translation of blessing there is actually fervently blessed. Like he took him in his arms. I don't know how he did it. You know, just like, obviously he didn't do this. But it was something like, you know, strong blessing is what the Greek language is trying to say that he blessed these kids with. It wasn't just like, hey, cool, I see you, get lost. Like we do with kids a lot, right? Um, I do, I'm sorry, maybe not you. But like we just kind of shoo them away. All right, all right, that's enough questions. Instead, Jesus is like, no, I'm blessing you. I see you. I'm embracing you. He shows this value to kids. Then he jumps into this next passage, the rich young man, verse 17. They start to journey toward Jerusalem. And as he was setting on his journey, verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then verse 18, uh, through the next verses there to 21, he's like, all right, then you need to do these commandments, right? Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, and all these commands. And the young man, he's a rule follower. He's one of those rule followers, not looking for the exception, right? And he's saying, oh, I've done all these. Just like the Pharisees, Jesus sets him up, right? I'm going to set you up here, and I'm going to go to your rule-following little heart, and I'm going to show you how horrible you are. So he's like, I've done all these. I've never committed adultery or murder or steal anything or anything like that. I've never coveted, right? And then what does Jesus say? What was his answer? You lack one thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And before that, I want you to catch something that Jesus, it says he did. What does he say? He looked at him and what? He loved him. How many times do you or, or, or for me, do we get into conversations with people like this that this guy just ran up and interrupted him, right? And nailed, and not, now nobody's kneeling down at our feet, maybe you, but not me. Uh, and, and this guy interrupts him. And what do we do in those conversations? Oh, look at the time. Uh, I got to go. I got things to do. And instead, Jesus sees the value of this man and he looks at him and he loves him and he sees that this young man doesn't get it. Because he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. But verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So here it is. He's disheartened and sorrowful. The ask was too steep. This tells me he really had some kind of desire to pursue Jesus But his things, lifestyle, notoriety, influence, the future, control were too much to give up. He couldn't embrace helpless dependence. He had too much dependence on his own good and the things that he had in place and working things out. You college students that have a plan, you think you have this plan that's going to get you to senior year. Guess what? Your plan is most likely Probably, I'm going to say, 98% going to get screwed up. Sorry to burst your bubble. But then in the screw up, in the mess of your plan, that's where you see Jesus because he asks you to do things that are going to mess up your plan. He's going to ask you to do things that screw with the things that you have planned, 
that you want to do, but he's going to offer you something greater. And this young man couldn't bring himself to say yes. And he missed out on what was on the other side of yes, which is something far greater than any of you could plan, that I could plan. Think I planned to be standing on a stage in Central Texas growing up in Philadelphia? No, but it's far greater than anything I could have imagined. And here it is. This is what he offered. So the question for you is, what is Jesus asking you to give up? Sell your possessions, sell control, sell this relationship, whatever it is that is holding you down and keeping you down. Well, he finishes with a teaching moment. We'll wrap up. We're not going to read all the scripture there, but 23 to 31 is a teaching moment for the disciples. Jesus looks at his disciples after this, after encountering this young man, and he makes this statement, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting. And we need to assess who has wealth first. One stat I read this week states that almost half of humanity is living on $5.50 per day. And there's other stats up there as well. We won't go into all of them, but even in the U.S., there's a lot of people, 12% of the population, living on $33 a day. Moral of the story is everyone here is wealthy. Everyone's wealthy. So when he says the wealthy and how difficult it is for the enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about you and me. The wealthy can't do it. It's, it's impossible, he says. Well, then who can? If it's impossible, he says, even sarcastically, he says, it's, even more, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to come to Christ as a wealthy person. And then he makes the statement that is misused Taken out of context, left and right, all things, what's impossible with man, all things are possible with God, right? Put it on coffee mugs, bumper stickers, all these things, and we talk about, well, I didn't study for that test, but all things are possible with God, right? You know? I don't really feed into my marriage, but all things are possible. And we slap it on everything? Well, let's set it straight. This is about the gospel. And what's impossible for us is us coming to God on our own. What is possible for us is Jesus Christ paying the precious blood on the cross for our sins and makes it possible for us to know God. Helpless dependence on the precious blood of Jesus. And then Peter, you know, if you study Peter's life, you see Peter always have to chime in, right? And Peter says, hey, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus is like, yeah, you did. I get it. You left everything. You watched The Chosen. It's greatly illustrated in that series, how they left everything. He's like, yeah, you're gonna, you'll be blessed. But you also have persecution if you read in that passage. Look at verse 30. He says, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's lands. Whoa, <laughs> with persecutions. A lot of churches leave that one out. Well, here at TBC, we don't preach health and wealth, prosperity. We don't teach any of that. When you come to Christ, it's a call to die to yourself. It's a call to have helpless dependence on the one that paid the price for your sin and mine. So it's not coming to Jesus so that he can do things for us. But it's coming to so that we can show off his glory. So as we wrap it up, many of us consider ourselves to be extremely independent. If I'm totally honest, when I think of the word dependence, 
I think of weakness. When I think of the word dependence, I mean, think about it. Someone who has to be pushed around in a wheelchair, someone who needs a bath, uh, someone else to bathe them, someone who needs someone to feed them. Oftentimes you think of weakness, right? And the reality is, in my personal life, I constantly try to do things myself, avoid asking for help, try to find a way to fix any difficult situation I find myself in or my family in. This type of mindset is good in, in leadership and trying to solve problems, but when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, it's a horrible mindset. It's detrimental to the community that God has created us for because if you try to do it on yourself and not depend on a group of believers, you're not fulfilling what God has designed. He's designed us for community. So people that go rogue and try to do their own thing are living outside of God's design for community. And secondly, it denies us the most essential posture we should live by, which is helpless dependence on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we've been through a lot of scripture today, and there's so many lessons, but they all tie back to one thing, which is helpless dependence. Whether it's a marriage that's not going well, or a marriage that has ended, whether it's little kids who need to come to you or maybe an attitude we have that we are good enough and smart enough that we have what we need and we don't need you. Lord, help us to realize that children of the kingdom exemplify helpless dependence. For those that are here that don't know you, that they'll trust you even today and depend on you and the work that your son Jesus did on the cross. As we go toward communion right now, Lord, bless us as we focus on that sacrifice. In your name we pray, amen. For those that are watching at home, you can join with us, but you should have uh, a communion cup and uh, cracker that you got on the way in. If you didn't get one, we have them in the back. And this time is just a brief time for us to be able to focus on Jesus. It's communion is an ordinance given us as a command from Jesus himself. It's a reminder to believers of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. It's also designed to be a time of personal confession and reflection. So as we prepare to take the bread, what I'd like to ask is just for a minute to sit there in your seat and to confess. Confess whatever it is that may be holding you back, maybe things that are in the way, just like this young ruler, this rich young ruler. Confess it to God and repent in this time, and then we'll take the bread together. God, we're thankful for the body that was broken for us. The fact that you sent your son, Jesus, to be beaten, to be abused, to go through physical hell on our behalf. Lord, we come before you broken, come before you sinful, and we helplessly depend on you. We thank you for your love. As we continue in communion, listen to these words from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread.
When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to take this cup representing Christ's precious blood that was shed for us, take a minute to focus on that blood, that pure, precious blood that was shed for you. Take a minute to focus on that and praise God for what he's done. Continue reading in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 and 26. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you thankful come before you in need of a Savior. We praise you that we don't have to work. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to impress you. We live helplessly dependent on you by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that a lost and dying world this week will see that on our faces, hear it from our lips, and see it through our actions. In your name we pray. Amen.